Spider McCallum lived the type of life you usually only hear about in fiction or folklore. Growing up in Montana in the Depression era, Spider, born James, spent most of his life fighting. First, in a semi-professional boxing career that lasted over 40 years. And then as a bouncer and a barkeep at one of Missoula's most notorious dives. But on a cold night in February 1969, a savage blow to the head from an axe did what thousands of punches couldn't do and put Spider down for the count. From the Montana Mint, this is Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved. I'm John Hooks, and in this episode, my co-host, author Brian D'Ambrosio and I will take you through the extraordinary life and death of Spider McCallum, an almost mythical figure of old Montana. We'll talk about Spider's career in the ring, the wider world of boxing in Montana during that era, and Spider's life after boxing, and the personal betrayal that would put it to an end. We'll start off with the story of how young James F. McCallum became Spider. Do we know how he got the nickname of Spider? Is that a boxing nickname? Uh, we do. You know, I, I, I think as the story goes, at about age 12, um, he was an amateur boxer, and he won his first trophy from the Intermountain Amateur Athletic Association in his weight class. And uh, it's the comment was something uh, along the lines of him moving around like a spider. Now, and I've tried to think about the name, you know, Spider in in relation and association, you know, to boxing. Yeah, um, and, you know, like you it can seems hear, like he's got eight, le- eight, eight arms or something, you know. That could be a good analogy. You yeah. Know? Maybe he was like, you know, octopus, you know, could have been a nickname or, yeah. I mean, we hear names like, you know, like Killer and, you know, Mauler and, you know, and, uh, and other names like that. But, you know, I think Spider's kind of an interesting name. I don't know if it was, uh, um, if that struck someone as peculiar about his build, it's more about mm. his physical appearance or his um, um, his uh, his mode of uh, and methodology in, in in the boxing ring as a, as a young kid but it looks like at age 12 he gets that nickname so spider wasn't spider you know he was james he was james yeah. f mccollum uh, and he was born in uh, november 23rd 1912 at dobson montana it looks like his family moved to, to Bozeman when he was about 14 years old, um, you know, where he attended some local schools. And um, now his family legend, family lore, is a little hazy um, and, a, and a little murky, but I've tried to put together a timeline thanks to his, um, his only living descendant. Um, and the family moved, looks like, to Missoula maybe 1935. So we're looking at um, the uh, legend of... of the man who came to be known as Spider, um, as far as in his boxing ring, um, and going into the boxing ring, his first professional fight is in about 1935 mm-hmm. at Missoula. Now, again, some of the records are, you know, could be a little bit are a little dubious, you know, um, but um, from what I can see, it appears like his first professional fight most likely took place in a gym in Livingston in 1932. Oh, 
So it looks like that ended with uh, Spider knocking a, a guy cold. I think the guy's mm. name was Jimmy Tate uh, out of Billings. You know, and what's really interesting when you talk about legends and lore is uh, a lot of uh, uh, Spider's early fights, they, they were held in a very curious lot of you know, opera houses or social clubs or mm. temples and theaters and athletic clubs uh, across Montana. So Spider um, is uh, picking up some, uh, picking up a reputation around the state, um, and over the years, Spider accumulated um, something of a legendary status. I mean, he had a couple of great feats. One of them was uh, apparently he fought two ten rounders uh, in one night. Um, yeah, that that is crazy to me. <laughs> you know, toward the end, it, you know, it looks as if uh, you know Spider. McCallum, the only thing he should have been fighting at toward the end of his career was the urge to fight, but he couldn't <laughs> even resist that. And he was getting in the boxing ring um, a quarter century, a quarter of a century after he first stepped into it. Wow. Um, so it, there's a fight, it looks like in 1948, when both uh, he and his opponent, a gentleman from St. Regis named Tiger Bob Noonan, it looks like uh yeah tiger right yeah that's a boxing nickname yeah tiger bob yeah tiger tiger and the spider um so it looks like when both of them are more than twice the age of most mature fighters so it looks like he's climbing in the ring uh for another run when he's about 50 and uh you know interesting enough too you know it looks as if you know um he's keeping um a whole slew of uh of jobs while he's boxing professionally security guard, uh, a cook and a baker for the Forest Service, Northern Pacific Railroad switchman, Northern Pacific bus driver on the Hamilton route, National Guard and Army Reserve. Spider also worked at the American Crystal Sugar Company in sugar beet processing campaign uh, quote unquote, usually at the laboratory. So it looks Interesting. like, yeah. <laughs> so it looks like, you know, Spider was, um, uh, you know, he was a, he was a, a busy, busy man. And, Jack of all trades. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like maybe not someone who achieved much professional success in the ring. If he's kind of working all these odd jobs, you know, I, yeah, it, it, you know, it looks like, you know, Spider was, uh, you know, kind of a, a lower tier guy, you know, I guess what you maybe consider a, a, a club fighter, um, you know, a guy who, um, I wouldn't call him, you know, in boxing terms, there's a, der- a couple of derogatory terms. There's a, you know, there's a ham and acre. Yeah. It's the fighter who, you know, fights for just enough money to have breakfast the following morning, a breakfast of ham and eggs, you know, there's tomato can, in one yeah. of them. and some of them, I don't know the derivative, but there's a whole, it's a whole bunch of, you know, descriptions. And I, 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 you know, and I, I'd, I'd be reluctant to, to label McCallum in, in that manner. But I'll just say, you know, he was, you know, he was a, a tough club fighter, um, who seemed to enjoy fighting, seemed to be boxing maybe for the mirth and the, and the merriment yeah. of it all, maybe yeah. for the physicality. Um, it doesn't seem spider ever had 
you know, uh, aspirations to, to go any further or any deeper, or if he did, it seems as if he was limited by his um, whatever skill and talent he had. And he just didn't possess enough to get to that upper level or upper tier. So, so we're looking at um, a, a guy named Spider who is um, is uh, whose fistic prowess, you know, might not be the best, but you can count on him, you know, for the promise of a good time and a, sure. and, a and a hard punch. Sure. Now is a good time to get into the wider world of the boxing scene in Montana at the time that Spider was fighting. Because although Montana has produced a few top-tier level fighters over the years, the majority of the fighting infrastructure in the state was for guys like Spider. Think a bunch of burly men with mustaches, smoking cigars, filling up gyms and small theaters and CCC camps with smoke, as guys with nicknames like Spider and Tiger pummel each other for a few rounds. You know, when you look back at, at you know, you know, boxing in Montana, you know, has uh, has uh, existed since the days, you know, even before Montana was Montana. I think if you go back and look in old clippings and old newspapers um, pre-Montana, you know, going back even to the territorial days, you're looking at headlines of, of fights among miners and, and prospectors. But professional boxing, you know, it has you know, has been in Montana for a long extensive period um you know for example you know stanley ketchell who is one of the great middleweights of all time was working um as a, a bouncer and a, a a bar hop and a barkeeper imbued for a number of years and if you look on on box record you look um other boxing record sites you see stanley ketchell listed as um fighting imbued you know, we're looking in the early 1900s and having a number of fights there. You know, 1923, of course, is the the iconic blunder. You know, one of the greatest blunders of all time in boxing is the the fight that gutted Shelby financially. You have Jack Dempsey and Tommy Gibbons. The fight that began as a gag became a publicity stunt and ended as a financial catastrophe. Jack Dempsey versus Tom Gibbons in Shelby, Montana. Shelby, Montana, just 40 miles from the Canadian border. The imaginative businessmen of Shelby decided to put their little oil town on the map by staging a heavyweight championship prize fight. An hour before the fight, the new wooden stadium is almost empty and there's a noticeable absence of activity across the tent-dotted prairie. Look closely. In the background is downtown Shelby. At the right, on top of the hill, hundreds of non-paying customers are expecting to get their thrills long distance. There was a massive infrastructure that was built for that fight. And um, unfortunately, it didn't meet the expectations. And, you know, banks went bankrupt and, mm. and uh, massive, you know, a gargantuan coliseum was built. and. Yeah. Um, and uh, the expectations again weren't met, and that's been pretty well document, documented. So you look at 1923; you've got you've got you've got Jack Dempsey here. Um, so you know, in the 40s, I'm not really sure what's going on. There are fights, you know, I and mean, there are there are professional boxing, uh, associates in, in, in Missoula and, uh, and, and Bozeman. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get uh, 
a guy named Roger Rouse, who's a light heavyweight fighting at an Anaconda, who uh, goes on to to challenge uh, for the world light heavyweight title twice, you mm-hmm. know. So, which is a, a phenomenal feat. So, yeah. so Roger Rouse went over two, and then Mar- you know, Marvin Camel comes along in the late seventies, you know, early eighties, and he competes for a brand new title, a newly created title called the cruiserweight title, which is between light heavyweight and heavyweight. And Marvin, you know, wins um, the first ever cruiserweight title fight. So we've got we've got that. I know that's after yeah. um, after after Spider. So just to give you a little bit of, of context, is that um, we're, we're dealing with a guy like you know Roger Rouse or, or you know, Marvin Camel and a lot of those other names you just mentioned. Those are um, those are um, the cream of the crop. You know the proverbial mm-hmm. cream of the crop. These guys are um, are ranked. Um, you know they're they're well they're well known. Um, and they're in their full-time professional boxers where it seems like, you know, Spider might have fought um, just um, as a side gig, you know, yeah. it, might not have, yeah. not, it might not have been, his, it might have been more of a, a vocation or a hobby or than it was, a, you know, a full-time occupation. And you could see when you look through his work history that he had a, a number of, of different jobs. So, yeah. but to, you know, did, did Spider box just out of the, the, uh, out of sheer fulfillment? Um, yeah, it's hard to know mm-hmm. without, uh, much written record on Spider. Not, you know, very few, if any, you know, interviews that there's almost nothing in any, uh, boxing magazine referencing Spider in his career. Yeah. So, uh, much of it just kind of comes from, you know, you know, local newspapers as far as, uh, trying to pick up, um, a sentence here or there and see how the fights went. But, uh, but, you know, but spider obviously found some fulfillment in professional boxing cause he was doing it, uh, up until the time he was an old man. And, uh, so, uh, you know, he was climbing in the ring for another run. He's about 50 years old. Right. Um, and I think there's, there is a story of, um, the Montana athletic commission intervening on his mm-hmm. behalf, uh, essentially for his own safety. And they're telling him, you know, spider it's time to stop trying to fight right that was uh, when he was other time he was 38 i believe right right, right. yeah even older than kept, that yeah kept yeah. doing it for years after that yeah. yeah yeah these guys are you know he's well into like i said into about 50 years old so something about being in the ring certainly captured spider's full attention and devotion the man fought for most of his life despite never breaking through past the semi-professional circuit. Something about the thrill of the fight resonated with him in a way that he was never free from. Even when his boxing career finally ended, he found a way to stay right in the heart of the scrum. More on that after a break. Hey everyone, John back on here. Hope you're all really enjoying the first episode of Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, the podcast. Uh, We are a proud member of the burgeoning Montana Mint Podcast Network, which is a growing network of Montana-focused podcasts. 
Other shows on the network include the Montana Trivia Championship, which is a game show devoted entirely to our great treasure state. They have the Grizz Fan Podcast, which is devoted to all things Grizz football. And we also have the Montana Mint Sports Pod that covers the Cats, the Grizz, all things Big Sky Conference, and everything in between. You can find all of these shows on most major podcast apps, including whichever one you're listening to this show right now. And you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. We're also brought to you by Morning Light Coffee in Great Falls. Operating since 1989, Morning Light is Montana's oldest family-owned coffee roaster, and they take pride in using responsibly sourced beans roasted daily on site, available for purchase online or in-store. You can stay basic this fall with a pumpkin spice latte or try their new nitro cold brew with pumpkin cold foam. They have responsibly spaced outdoor seating and drive through available. Again, that is Morning Light Coffee Roasters on 1701 9th Avenue South in Great Falls. Check them out on Instagram at Morning Light Coffee Roasters, all one word. This episode is also brought to you by Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Montana Properties in Missoula. If you're looking for a new home in Montana, contact Mike Nugent. Mike is a lifelong Montanan and will be an experienced partner to help you navigate these unprecedented markets. He can also help you find an agent anywhere in Montana. Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Montana Properties is Montana's leader in real estate, and nobody helps clients buy or sell more than they do. And you can put that experience to work for you. And remember, when it comes to real estate, the only bad question is a question you never asked. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved. We're picking up the story of Spider McCallum at the end of his boxing career, where he finds a way to stay in the action. As the bartender and owner of a rough and tumble saloon down by the train tracks in downtown Missoula, called the Maverick Bar. So Spider, you know, with uh, with boxing behind him, uh, finds a second act um, as a saloon owner in Missoula, mm. and uh, reportedly it was his technique of vaulting over the bar to stop brawls and disturbances that impressed the spectators more than his skill in the boxing ring. You know, Spider um, was a rough guy, you know, and that was a rough bar. I mean, anyone who remembers the bar um, or has preserved it in their memories or preserved it in in print or their notes, you know, or, or um, they all kind of refer to it in the same manner as just being one of the one of the the roughest, scruffiest yeah. places uh, imaginable, um, you know, where fights and would not have been uncommon. In fact, I think Spider had been had been stabbed one time during you know and, and that which isn't uncommon to to most bars or many bars um sure. and um but it looks like he you know he was running that or, or involved in that from you know the mid 40s all the way into the, the into the 60s so so the man himself is uh fi- he finds a second 
act in a second life as a uh, as a, uh, a tavern owner. Sure, I, there was a, an interesting detail I liked in the in the story of, of him getting stabbed there, where he was breaking up a fight or attempting to break up a fight that someone had pulled in a knife, and you know had a slice across his stomach as part of it. But there's a, a great little nugget in there about him just refusing to press charges on the person who had stabbed him right which is uh that was felt like a really telling detail to me about just how tough a son of a bitch he is to put it in montana terms well yeah i mean if you think about uh you know mccallum had had been reported to have uh or appeared in more than about a hundred amateur fights and mm-hmm. professional boxing matches, and we still don't know the number. Um, so if you're in the middle of a of a brawl and you've got a, a, a welterweight in Spider McCallum, uh, who you know, who in many cases in many fights, you know, showed you know, so it showed great conditioning. Apparently, his condition was never in question. Mm. So, I mean, would he have been fit? And hardy and robust when he was managing the bar, I would guess, venture to guess it. Yeah. Absolutely. So if there was um if there was one guy that you might not want to uh, uh, tangle with, right. yeah, it would have been uh would have been spidering. And like I said, I mean it looks like Spider you know, really, really enjoyed fighting because I mean you know, he had after you know we mentioned he had the issue in Montana where he was banned and barred, and you know, the, the Montana athletic commission said we don't want guys reaching a certain age getting involved in the ring. Um, but it looks like you know Spider kept fighting in Montana because he has a fight in Great Falls in '56, um, and then he's got he wraps up his career in Washington, Oregon, and up in Canada. So, um, so for a guy. Born in, in, in 1912, you know, and he's fighting over into uh, the late 1950s. Yeah, that's yeah. not. Um, that's uh, it's tough. I mean, boxing's tough on anybody, but yeah. it's certainly tough um, when you reach uh, when you reach a certain age. So, but, you know, and and he went from one area, you know, one dangerous. Me, like to another dangerous one. Yeah. I mean, he goes from a, uh, an enclosed space, you know, where he's uh, judged on his ability to harm or hurt another person in that enclosed area, an enclosed space, to a bar environment, essentially another enclosed yeah. environment. And uh, so, um, Spider went from one dangerous. Uh, environment um, to another another dangerous environment and so you know as you try to build some type of composite you know, of, of spider and, and, and spider's been been gone since 69 so there's there are few people around who, who probably wor- who worked with him there are even fewer who might have known him in, in in any capacity so we're you know we're going you know we're already 50 years you know removed from more than 50 years removed from, from when Spider was um, such a popular picture. So it's hard to kind of to put together you know, any type of compositing on what he was like and what he wasn't like. But one of his uh, only living descendant, his daughter, mentioned a couple things which I thought added a layer of texture and character to yeah. to Spider's story. Um, one of which was that you know that he enjoyed writing poetry. 
and she was clear that um, she had some at one point, um, but with a lot of moves and a lot of changes in her life, she's lost a lot of a lot of that um, or any of that. She just could not find any of it. But it was one thing that uh, she could remember that he was writing poetry. Um, she also noted that his handwriting was said to be impeccable. Yeah. Quote, unquote. That was another thing. Yeah, I love that little um, detail. <laughs> and, uh, and, and as she recalled it, you know, she felt that he was more or less staying active in boxing kind of in his spare time, especially later on in, in his life, just to, just to stay, f- to, to stay fit and to stay hardy and to stay ro- robust. Um, but again, it looks as if we've got, uh, a one-trick pony, so to speak, in many ways, you know, a, a fighter and a brawler, and uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, you know, and, and when I say this fighter, it was no angel and no saint. Right. I don't right. think he would have ever claimed uh, uh, any right to, to such a, dis- a distinction or, or moniker that he was an angel. Because, um, you know, he opened that bar in tandem with his wife. Um, the bar outlasted the marriage. Um, looks like he was arrested at one point for assaulting um, that wife. So he married a waitress. Uh, they started a home. Uh, that marriage faltered. So Spider ended up moving in with some some of his kin at a, a house at 817 um, North Ryman Avenue. So that is where um, ultimately it would be considered. Um, the end of the line for Spider, that's where his life ends one night in 1969. Spider's house on Ryman was notable for having a pretty fluid living arrangement. It seems like he must have had a real soft spot in his heart for troublemakers and strays he encountered at the Maverick. Because he would let a rotating cast of people stay at his house as Spider tried to help get them back on their feet. One of these people Spider took under his wing was a young man named Daniel Tamietti. Well, Tamietti, so what we know is that he's the son of, of uh, Mineral County Sheriff Francis Tammy Eddie. Um, he was raised and attended schools in Superior. Um, dug up his old Superior High School yearbook photo in 1961. I mean, he looks to be a handsome, ordinary kid. He's wearing a suit and tie. Um, uh, we know that he attended the University of Montana for five years. Uh, he was employed at Castle Empire Foods in Superior for about six. And the connection between Tamietti and McCollum is nebulous, though. You know, it is possible that they could have come first come in contact at the Maverick Bar in 1962, 63. Um, you know, Tamietti's in the pre-forestry program. Um, following year, he's registered in the business administration program. So we could only kind of guess um, how Tamietti knew Spider mm-hmm. McCollum. But yeah, he was at least uh, around the months and weeks preceding the murder. Was uh, his daughter said? I believe that he was he was staying with Spider at some point. Right, right, yeah, and 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 that that's pretty remarkable. But but Anita, Spider Spider's daughter, remembers Dave Tamietti, and and as we uh, had a couple conversations about Tamietti, she remembers that she was. 
19, you know, when, when he was killed, but she remembered that, um, that she went to the, the house on Ryman Avenue a few months before he was killed, and she saw Dave, Tammy, Eddie there. In uh, her words, she, she remembered him, you know, pacing around and walking around in circles. Said he was silent, he didn't say a word, uh, he didn't stay very long, but she remembers feeling very uncomfortable in her words with him there. Um, she said that her dad seemed okay, um, but she was, she thought that, you know, that David was, you know, was living there and what Anita contributed, you know, attributed um, the relationship to was the fact that um, her dad had a big heart and he would. You know, he was big on bringing people, bringing in people who were who might have been bad or who might have been troubled uh, to help them out. So, if it is is it a possibility? It looks like we have you know, Tamietti living at the same house with Spider. So Spider, you know, so it looks like we've got a probable murder date, you know. So we're yeah. going to go with February the 21st in 1969. That's according to the Missoula County Coroner at the time of Spider's death. Um, so we're going to look at, you know, we'll just say February 21st, 1969. So it looks like February 28th, it's a Friday about 11.30 p.m. The police radio man... It's a phone call from a resident in Missoula um, and to check on Spider McCollum's house. Um, now, the interesting thing about, about the phone call is that the resident claimed that they had gotten the phone call from Sheriff Francis Tamietti of Superior, which, had been, which was Dave Tamietti's father, which, which um, I think they even... Mentioned during the trial that they may have it, they made the phone call at the at the the request of Francis Tamiani, mm. which is, which makes it interesting. So the yeah. the officers get there, they go to eighteen eight seventeen North Ryman. Uh, McCollum's body is on the bed. Um, in the report, it says that he was frozen, um, and they use that word multiple times. Mm. Um, but his left the side of his head is severely beaten. The back door of the house had been left open. Uh, house water pipes were, were frozen. Mm. Um, and the, the injuries were, you know, were, were fairly, you know, significant. Obviously, they were significant enough to, to kill him. Um, but they're detailed um, fairly extensively. Um, the trauma that that spider had, been, had suffered, uh, you know, he'd been essentially beaten, beaten to death in his own home. I think the autopsy report has uh, three lacerations on the left side of his head, one being an extensive crush with a blunt instrument, probably an axe, mm. um, to give you some indicator or indication of what the crime scene would have looked like and what the, the Missoula police officers would have encountered at that home and Ryan Avenue on that night in February. Within um, within days, you know, three men are, are held. There's a guy named Jim Rourke. He's arrested at a Helena hotel room. 
Dave Tamietti and, and another man named Gary Matteo are held by authorities in Idaho Falls, Idaho. It seems as if you know Tamietti um, possessed you know a number of, of spiders' possessions, um, and a lot of those possessions were later identified as spiders. The authorities wouldn't have known that at the time, but several of the of the items in Tamietti's possession included an elect electric razor uh, an electric toothbrush i don't know what one of those would have looked like in 1969 hair clippers um so there's a tan suitcase sammy is carrying at idaho falls and we have and we've got you know those items that are that are in there so it looks mm -hmm. like um uh tamietti um, is in possession of of several items that were later connected to spider but tamietti's you know his, his initial response to the to the police is the police to send on him ask the question you know did, did my father send you um did my was my father mm -hmm. was the one who had sent you I, which you know going back to the other other piece of information earlier um where it appears as if Sheriff Francis Tamietti mm -hmm. had put someone up to making the phone call to check on Spider's well-being. Um, so is that an indicator that Francis had already known? Um, he also makes an, a couple of other you know, strongly incriminating statements. One of them, I, I don't have it verbatim, but it's essentially, you know, I, my, you know, my fingerprints are going to be all over that place. Yeah. Um, but in his defense, his fingerprints, yeah, they would be all over the place because it he'd seems lived, like he had lived, lived there, there yeah. too. Um, so it's uh, it's interesting is that the charges now we, they they charged three, uh, three people, you know, three individuals, mm -hmm. and um, two of them were dropped. I mean, Gary Matteo and James Work uh, proved that they were not in Missoula at the time of the murder, and again. Even in the you know in, in the notes for all the trial and the court stenographers' notes and, and, and throughout the trial transcript, this is, we're going with the probable night. Yeah, um, sure. So, but it's interesting that that you could prove that you weren't somewhere on a probable night. I yeah, mean, if it wasn't that yeah. night, I mean, if it was a certain night, we're absolutely certain he was they on a certain day. They walked away and whoo, right. glad they thought it was the twenty first. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you could make the argument say, well, you know, we weren't here on uh, on Saturday. Yeah. Um, and then, how do you know if, if Spider, you know, was you know was bludgeoned or, or you know, taken apart with an axe on Saturday or Friday? So, but you know, I, I think it, the, the night has always just been a probable night. So that's the kind of the the, the night that we're gonna we're gonna use. So, um, you know, so anyway, the, the two, other two two men, you know, they they, uh, they got bonded out, and then they were later released um, uh, and had the charges dropped. And then, you know, Tamietti um, was sent over to Warm Springs, uh, where he was deemed, uh, you know, fit to, to stand trial. And Tamietti has, has, his murder trial starts, I think, about December, we'll say 1969. I think the opening date is December 9th, 1969. The county attorney had uh, 49 witnesses mm. um, uh, on a list of potential um, 
names that he was going to call for the trial. I think he submitted 49. Mm. Called about um, almost all of them. I think he ended up calling about 44 total. And one, you know, one of them was the owner and operator of the Spick and Span Cleaners at 345 West Kent in Missoula. Mm. And she had testified that Spider and Tamietti had both worked part-time for her. Mm. Um, they both had stopped by for their part-time work checks around February the 15th. Mm. Um, and according to, to Miss you know, Bernice Callantine, that's another great name yeah, too. Yeah. Uh, Tamietti had said that, uh, quote, he would want more work. So it looks like Tamietti was looking for more work. Um, but she had also said that Spider had mentioned that uh, he was looking at going to Las Vegas on a mm. trip or Las Vegas, Nevada. But uh, but but it, it appears uh, you know, that Spider and Tamietti also you know had work part time jobs, um, menial mm. jobs, labor jobs, gigging. I guess you'd call yeah. it like a twenty yeah. first century term that they yeah. both you know sought employment. And it, part-time employment or temporary employment um, together. Uh, they'd, they'd been working together, which I thought was really interesting. There was another uh, woman who worked at uh, the Bamboo Village, um, mm. and she had claimed that Spider and Tamietti had worked temporarily at that place as well. So now we've got a, two people who you know, are witnesses you know, uh, for the county attorney who claimed that Spider and Tamietti were were working together? So, um, and another witness had, had um, at the Belmont Hotel, who was the owner and the operator at the Belmont. It looks like that's listed at, at four thirty North Higgins. Um, mm. She had provided the dates that Tamietti had lived there, uh, and when she had last uh, last seen him, and and she was you know sure that Tamietti was there before the date of the murder. And was there in uh, February twentieth, uh, nineteen sixty nine. But she claims that uh, you know that, that Tamietti was a good rumor, and that Spider had visited Tamietti at the hotel often. Yeah. So, and James Rourke, one of the the other two men who had been arrested for for Spider's murder, testifies. Mm. So he reveals. Um, a plan, uh, a plan that uh, Tamiti had to remove items from McCollum's home. So we're looking at theft immediately as the motive. Um, you know, according to Rourke, you know, he and Tamiti are drinking um, uh, er, right before, a few days before, I don't think, uh, uh, February 15th, they run out of money. Um, so Tamiti starts to, to, to um, enter people's homes and, and steal cameras and transistor radios and and and, t- and starts taking merchandise you know and, and obtaining merchandise through through uh through theft and he's sent he's pawning them at the as they say the local hawk shop you know which is i don't know if anybody uses that anymore but it's kind of a fun thing and they they have uh, h and s capitalized and hawk shop and all the notes so it's kind of one of those fun words to pop up i'm guessing it's <laughs> proper down pawn shop right yeah so, um, so to establish, you know, either a pattern or to establish the character of, of Tamietti and to, to feed 
the narrative that this was a that theft was the motive. You know, War, uh, Rourke's put on the stand, um, and he testifies that Tamietti is drinking heavily the week prior, stealing things. He's running out of money. Um, he claims that one night, um, Tamietti suggested that there was a place on Ryman where where they could get more goods. Um, so now this is Spider's house. Um, but I guess uh, according to Rourke, Tamietti didn't know how to get Spider away from from the house so they decided that Rourke would call Spider to the Western Union for a message I mean mm. there's another little anachronism too yeah. huh the yeah. old Western Union yeah. for a trick so <laughs> yeah. uh, so apparently Rourke um, you know uh, the plan would have been to for have Rourke to pretend he's from Western Union uh, and, and Spider has to come down to get this message and Tammy Eddie would ransack the house um so this is their this is their plan. Um this is, you know according to you know according to uh, to uh, James Rourke. So Tammy Eddie would ransack the house, Rourke would call, uh, and then Tammy Eddie uh, would go and get the goods that, that they are that he wanted. So mm-hmm. apparently that did not happen, but this is the to, to to give you some insight um into some of the, the Issues that maybe Tammy Eddie was facing in in his personal life, or sure. some of the things that might have compelled him to kill Spider. So that comes out at at the trial. Now, you know, at the courtroom trial of Tammy Eddie, uh, he denies killing Spider, and and a lot of people who kill people deny killing people. Sure. Understand? Uh, so that all by itself, you know, could be perfectly meaningless. But uh, um, but Tam but Tammy Eddie's got a you know, it's got a you know a story um, that's uh, you know deeply you know I mean suspicious. I mean, um, the climax of Tamietti's trial came when he took the stand in his own defense. But far from clearing anything up, Tamietti's testimony throws the case further into uncertainty. More on that after another short break. Hey everyone, we really hope you're enjoying Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, the podcast. But if you're interested in more Montana true crime, you should check out my co-host, Brian D'Ambrosio's new book. It's also called Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved. And while it is the basis for this show and includes the cases we'll cover, it also gets into so much more than we have time for covering dozens of Montana's most infamous killings. Similar to this episode, Brian unearths some gruesome and little-known facts in almost every case in the book, drawing on official investigation reports and numerous personal interviews with law enforcement officials, witnesses, and survivors. Brian describes each murder like a good detective story. Readers will find riveting details about the murderers, their motives and methods, and their unfortunate victims. You can get a copy directly from Riverbed Publishing right now. 
That's riverbendpublishing.com to get a copy of Brian's new book. This podcast is also brought to you by a longtime Montana Mint supporter, the Hotel Finland in Uptown Butte. In Montana, chains are for tires, not for hotels. And the Hotel Finland is a unique, locally owned and operated hotel that offers reasonably priced, luxurious options. The Hotel Finland is located walking distance from most of the best places to eat in town. If you're in town for a conference, visiting family, or to investigate uh, notorious or unsolved murder, the Hotel Finland is the only place for you to stay. Do the right thing and experience all that Butte has to offer. Get your room today at finland.com. That's F-I-N-L-E-N.com. We mentioned at the top of the show that Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, is part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. The Montana Mint does a ton to help support local journalism and local content creation, including supporting this podcast. If you want to see more content like this, help support the Mint by buying some awesome gear in their store. The Montana Mint store is constantly rolling out new Montana-focused designs. The holidays are right around the corner, and gear from the Montana Mint makes the perfect present. Check them out at montanamint.com. That's montana-mint.com. Welcome back. We're picking up the last part of this story with Daniel Tamietti taking the stand in his own defense. But Tamietti's recounting of the fateful night of the murder would seem to lack one crucial element, coherence. He tells his tale that, you know, he went to the house um, and he doesn't know if it was um, the 18th, somewhere between the 18th and the 20th. And again, the presumed death date could be the February 21st, but he gets there um, at the 817 North Ryman house in, in Missoula. He's not sure what day it is. It's somewhere between like the 18th and the 20th. And he finds Spider in bed and he tries to wake him. And he thinks that Spider is drunk. So he pulls the covers back and sees that his head has been beaten. Um, so this makes him quote unquote sick. He says that he goes and vomits in the bathroom. Um, but then he also says that he took a can of beer and left for his room at the Belmont Hotel. So he claims that he, you know, he wasn't staying with Spider at the night of the murder, but he, you know, the day before, somewhere around that time. Um, but you know, Tamiati's got got some problems. I mean, most notably, he's got the articles in the suitcase that um, apparently he's trying to sell to tan suitcase or. You know, uh, he's got, you know, the, I guess there were also two cameras in there. We've got the hair clippers. There's a gun cleaning rod. Um, then the checkbook comes into play because in the suitcase, there's a checkbook and a bank statement and um, and some other paperwork ident- um, that was taken from Jane, you know, from, from Spider McCollum. So we've got um, um, a, a treasure trove of merchandise, you know, yeah. and, and of, of, uh, of items that um, Tamietti is found, uh, has no legitimate answer how to explain any of that stuff away. And I, if, I, if I'm correct in this too, I think uh, 
Tammy Eddie also says that he was in the house for uh, a half an hour to an hour and met uh, Spider's son and um, another man inside the house after having already discovered Spider dead there and vomiting in the bathroom and neglected to tell them <laughs> that uh, he had found Spider murdered there. That's true. And 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 the, and, and Spider's son. Yeah, and and this you know this other man was never identified. It was probably could have been a hefty figment of of uh, Tamiety's imagination. But mm-hmm. the, the son obviously you know had no recollection of of, of that of Tamiety and, and that and that meeting. But it is yeah. um, it gives you some insight into maybe what Tamiety was you know what was going going through his mind. So sure. he um yeah I think that's it. He, you know, he gets that container of beer. I I think he, he even said at one point you know. He lit a fire. He's, yeah, yeah. He sat there and yeah. warmed himself up by the fire. And this is 1969, so I don't know what would have been on the air, but maybe... Um, Turn on I, the TV a little bit. Yeah, maybe you just watched... Um, See what Walter Cronkite's up to. The, the most trusted man in America yeah, was yeah. a Cronkite. Yeah, I think he was still would have had a great run by then. So, yeah. uh, But, um, yeah, he had uh, said something along the lines. He assumed that, you know, Spider was on a was on a, a bender and then that he, he, you know, he, he, he being Tammy Eddie, mm-hmm. you know, uttered a, a couple of cuss words at the corpse because he was trying to wake him up and yeah. he couldn't awaken McCallum. So we, you know, he just called them all these bad names. And, um, and then he saw, you know, the, the body and, um, but again, he said, yeah, his son, yeah, his son, John, you know, was uh, allegedly there. Um, and it was, uh, it, it was uh, an intriguing defense. I yeah, mean, I mean, it's one that doesn't <laughs> uh, seem to have like a coherence behind it. To be, you know, it's right. one of those things. And in, in reading about the story myself, I'm just, I keep just thinking, like, wait, what? What right. is he saying? You know, right. what is his sequence of events that he's trying to convince people of here? It's, it's hard to follow. Right, and 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 one of the things that came out at the. Uh, at the trial, and it was a 12-day trial. The trial lasted 12 days. Mm. Um, the judge um, instructed them to ignore Tamietti's previous criminal a- activities while rendering the verdict. So mm. at the end of the the uh, the 12 days, so it looks like Tamietti uh, had committed other crimes, um, including forgery. Mm. Um, and and there was an end, there was another tense moment or, or so it seems you know if you can just infer where there was a there's a moment where like the county attorney um had uh you know not only confronted tamietti um, but he had he made references he'd pointed over at uh tamietti tamietti's father at, at, at sheriff tamietti mm-hmm. um so so sheriff francis tamietti's a another you know interesting figure here i mean he's sitting beside his son throughout the whole trial um, at one point the county attorney points um in his closing arguments he turns to francis tammy the sheriff and makes a declaration that uh you know sheriff tammy Eddie, david is guilty of this charge as if again there had to be some some other Information maybe that the county attorney had, or yeah. maybe there, the you know, authorities and detectives had suspected that 
you know, Fran- Francis had known more or was privy to more, um, yeah. uh, and did um, again as far as trying to reconstruct or construct any kind of timeline. You know, where's you know where was Tamietti in the the days that elapsed between Spider's you know Spider's murder and the day that you know the date that he's apprehended? Did he? have any contact you know with, with his father yeah. and, and that would be something that um the county attorney may have had a gut suspicion um that sheriff francis had had uh tammy Eddie had some type of uh of knowledge so the you know the i don't know if what the right word is and I, I hate to call it comical because it's also you know it also it's all so severe and so somber yeah. and stern but you know the the irony here is that the is that Tamiati's trial ends in a mistrial the, yeah. the, the, after the jury failed to reach a verdict. So, um, can you imagine that? You have a you have the guy in the house who puts himself at the death scene, puts himself and admits to yeah. plundering a dead man's house, admits to cracking open a beer, yeah, Light admits to lighting a fire. He admits to watching Walter Cronkite. <laughs> oh, he didn't admit to watching Walter Cronkite, um, but he admits to all these things. I mean, he he, um, and then and then he, it seems like he fabricates this this story about running into Spider's you know, son there and, and another person. So here is a, a person who's saying, "Yeah, yes, I, I was, I was there. Not only was I there, but." You know, I saw the body, and I, it made me sick, made me want to vomit, I, and but I took off. You know, I just mm-hmm. didn't know what to do. Um, and we also, you know, had works powerful testimony about about Tammy Eddie being, you know, being you know being a thief and yeah. about a theft being a motive. So there was a lot of powerful, powerful, you know, evidence, or so it seemed. You know, uh, a good case against. Tamietti, but the jury um, just did not go for it. So um, the county attorney said that uh, you know I think what we're going to do here is we're going to we're going to put Tamietti right back onto the stand, uh, and that's what that's what they uh, that's what they did. You know we're going to get him back in the hot seat, and they uh, rescheduled the another trial. The county attorney. Brought him back up on charges. I think the the next trial, the second trial, was scheduled for November of uh, of nineteen seventy, and that was vacated two days before it was to start. When Tamietti pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of second degree murder, mm. so there was a you know somewhat anticlimactic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, um, and, and and there's some intrigue there is. Uh, so you have a guy who beat, you know, who seemingly, you know, I wouldn't say he beat it, but he, he neutralized it. I mean, it was a, it was a draw. Yeah. You know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't acquitted. He certainly wasn't better than being convicted, but he, mm-hmm. you know, he fought the system to a draw and then decided not to go back for, uh, yeah. for a rematch. You know, and I think, well, that's, that's a good boxing analogy, isn't it? There you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah. he decided that, uh, um, he did not want to go back, um, for the return about and um so he pled you know he, he got about he got a sentence of uh of uh 20 years i mean and i think as far as um 
the conviction, you know, he still denied that he, that he killed McCallum. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't deny some connection um, with the murder, which was interesting in his own, he said he, in his own words, that he, he did not deny that he had some connection to it. Mm. Um, but he, he admitted he concealed facts and he said he was sorry for concealing the facts. He never uh, apologized, you know, for, for killing McCallum. Just mentioned the fact that he, he didn't deny that he had some connection to it. And I don't know if he had meant that he had stolen, he was an accessory after the fact, and he maybe had stolen some some of um, Spider's possessions. And I don't know if, if he meant that he, to implicate others, you know. Yeah. But uh, he had said he'd concealed the facts and he, and he was sorry. Uh, he admitted that he removed some, you know, some or many articles from McCollum's house and McCollum's checkbook with the intent to forge checks. Mm-hmm. So... Um, he also knew that he knew of his death and failed to contact authorities. But again, that was something he had said on on the stand that he right. had, he had known. So, so Tamietti um, is sentenced uh, is sentenced to uh, to twenty uh, twenty to twenty five years. I think was a sentence for him at the state prison. So it, it looks like Tammy Eddy served about two years in the Missoula County Jail and about four years in, in the state prison in Deer Lodge. Do we know uh, what became of Tammy Eddy afterwards, if he's if he's still around? or? So Tammy Eddy gets out of prison, you know. Um, so we're looking at, you know, the late 1970s. So he, he returned to live with his family in, in Superior mm-hmm. and... and it, apparently, you know, he's unable to cope with uh, the reintegration of society, mm. and uh, and I could say that with almost you know near certain fact because Tamietti you know, died of a, a self-inflicted gunshot wound on June fifth, nineteen eighty one, at Fish Creek State Park Campground in Alberton, at age thirty seven. Wow. So his suicide note um, instructed those who were close to him to quote unquote bury me at the big tree and that's a location perhaps that only Tamietti and those closest to him were aware of or even knew the significance of and in another stroke of of, um, of, uh, of bad fortune and bad luck um, it wouldn't be the last violent death associated with the legacy of Spider McCallum, you know, one of his sons, Patrick, uh, was 25 when he died of a self-inflicted wound from a 22 in his Missoula home in 1974. Patrick had enlisted in, in the Marines and served in the Vietnam War. He was discharged in 1972 and worked as a, a roofer and a laborer in the Missoula area. Wow, so kind of a ignominious end for a number of people involved in, in the in the case it is yeah yeah, so yeah absolutely a long, a long tail on it yeah people it's a very uh, very you know very um somber ending yeah. for for all for all of those you know connected to to spider and um but you know colorful in life and you know convoluted in death mccallum was as you know as hard as nails and about as puzzling as a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. 
Yeah, hard man to pin down, for sure, both literally and figuratively. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And again, it took a, uh, a, a horrible, vicious blow with an axe to, to put down Spider for, uh, for the count of ten. Thanks for listening to another episode of Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved. Come back for our next episode, where Brian and I will get into a very personal case for Brian. The death of Nelson McNair and the dark side of Livingston. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to the feed so you don't miss an episode and leave us a review with some other Montana murders you want us to cover. Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, is a production of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. It is produced by myself and Brian D'Ambrosio, along with Rory Murphy at The Mint. I do all the audio producing and editing on the show, and our cover art was designed by Sarah over at The Mint. Music in this episode is by Dan Leibowitz, Chris Hagen, The Tower of Light, and Wes Hutchinson.